So today we're doing the goodness of God. Um, this is one, I, I, I read that even our English word for God is a, con, is a uh, condensed version of good. So we basically call God good in English just by, our, by his name. The good, God's goodness is something that's just repeated regularly throughout the Bible. Um, for example, one of the favorite psalms, uh, a verse that is repeated in multiple psalms, if give, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his love endures forever. So the goodness of God is everywhere. I just picked one. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So here we have the goodness of God, that God is good. And so we, we want to ask, what is goodness? Goodness is something where, like all of these, it is hard to define, but I think goodness is hard to define in a different way than the other ones are hard to define. And that goodness is hard to separate from other things. So like, what's the difference between goodness and love? What's the difference between goodness and grace? What's the difference between goodness and kindness? Or, or is there a difference? Or is, are they all the same thing? Uh, and, and so that's, I think, the hard thing. Um, Charnock gave a pretty quick definition that by goodness is meant the bounty of God. And what he means here is that when he uses the word goodness and the way I'm using it is goodness is uh, get, having a lot and giving a lot. Simply giving a lot to people or giving a lot to creatures is what we mean by goodness. Sharing. God shares. He gives to his creatures. So just some clarifications on that. So goodness deals with charity and liberality and the arrangements of his goods. So God has all of these things at his possession and he gives them, that's charity, he gives them out in love and he does so liberally. He's not stingy. Uh, you know, he, he's not a penny counter, whatever, I forgot, money cruncher, whatever. He just gives. He gives, 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 gives. Uh -huh. The goodness of God is his inclination to deal well and bountifully with his creatures. It's another definition I found. So again, we've got this uh, dealing well and bountifully. God gives abundance. God's goodness is why he wills things to be other than himself. This was one of the key things uh, that I wanted to emphasize this week because a lot of people have asked the question, like, why did God create? You see, there was some notion within the Greek world that God, the gods had to create because in some way, shape, or form, they were lacking without creation. They were gods, but no one was worshiping them. They were gods, and yet no one was praying to them. They were gods, and yet they had no one to love and to rescue. So in the Greek concept, the gods were almost just as much in need of us as we are in need of them. And we obviously know that's not the case for our God. He is self-sufficient. He, he has no need of anything but himself. And so the question is, if God is in eternity past by himself, and he's perfectly fine, just like that, he's perfectly sufficient, why make anything at all? Like, why go through all this trouble? And we think God's goodness is the main reason for that, because creation is just a reflection of the God who gives things. He makes things. God wants to... Give things to others. Goodness is why he wills things to be other than himself. Because creation is itself an act of goodness. It's an act of making something beautiful or creating something great. So creation itself is merely just a, a, a manifestation of the goodness of God. So because God is good, 
He wants to give and create. And then once he creates, he wants to keep giving. So goodness is really what compelled God to, so to speak, to create, to make. So just to make some important distinctions, goodness is a little bit different than holiness. And I want to explain how. Holiness is the purity of God's nature. Goodness is his will to bless. So again, holiness just is God's, in his nature, he is pure and undefiled and he cannot be defiled. Goodness is his desire to bless other people. So like in theory, this is kind of dangerous because all of God's attributes are one. So it's, it's dangerous to speak of this, but just to help us understand, in theory, a person, a God could be perfectly holy and that would not necessarily entail that he was good. Like a God could be perfectly righteous and yet have no desire to bless others and help others. And so th that's one way we would kind of distinguish to some degree between holiness and goodness. Holiness is just the righteousness of God's nature. God's goodness is his desire to bless other things. Um, goodness is also not mercy. Mercy is a subset of goodness. When you receive mercy, you are receiving goodness. You're receiving something good from God. But goodness is much bigger than mercy, right? So, and, and the reason we know that is because mercy can only extend to a, one class of people. Mercy can only extend to the guilty. Goodness is extended to all. Uh, even, even righteous people receive good things. Even the creation itself is an act of goodness, the Bible tells us. And the creation can receive more good things. Yet the creation is not like a sinner needing mercy, right? The creation doesn't get mercy from God, but it does get goodness from God. So mercy is an act of goodness, but goodness is a broader category than mercy. So again, we just want to distinguish goodness as God's, the inclination of his will to bountifully give to others. Uh, and this is just a proof that God is, shows goodness to all, uh, even his enemies, even people who don't deserve it. He shows goodness to all. Jesus says in Matthew 5.45, For God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Right? That's just the world that we live in. And as a matter of fact, God is so good that sometimes his goodness offends his people. And you see this in Ecclesiastes. You see this especially in the Psalms where David will lament, why are evil people prospering? Like, why, do, why, does, why does God let evil people gain so much wealth and so much power? And, and I would think we would ask that same question too. Why, is, why are all these horribly wicked people so powerful? And, and it's just because that's just how good God is. God blesses his enemies. Uh, good God is just, he's merciful to his enemies. And this is another reason why I didn't add this in the slides, but just talking it out. We really would reject the prosperity gospel, which uh, is, by God's grace, I think it's dying out, but it was really popular a little while ago in this country. It's still pretty popular in other parts of the world. But it's this idea that God's will and desire for every Christian is to be rich and healthy and wealthy. And, and so if you're not, if you're unhealthy or if you're not rich, then you're living in some act of faithlessness. And if you had more faith, then God would bless you. And it basically turns God into sort of rewarding all of our righteousness with blessings. And that if you're sick, you're just not praying enough, or you're not faithful enough, or you're not righteous enough. And, uh, but the Bible is pretty clear consistently throughout that 
while God does occasionally reward his people on earth, largely speaking, a person's status in life is not a reflection of their righteousness. So someone could be extremely wealthy, extremely rich, and extremely happy. And that's not, we're not supposed to look at that and say, oh wow, God must think really highly of this person because he's blessed this person. Sometimes God blesses evil people even more than his own people, at least on this, in this life. That's how good he is. And the way we would explain this is you could kind of break, just the way we break God's grace up, you can break his goodness up the same way we break his grace up. Uh, and you could speak of God's general goodness, which is the same as common grace. So God shows goodness to, to everything. It's impossible to not receive the goodness of God. You couldn't outrun it if you wanted to. Um, and then we could talk about God's special goodness, which this, this is, it is a good thing when God shows us mercy. It's a good thing when God saves us. It's a good thing when God sends his son to die for us. And these are things that God's enemies don't ever receive. Um, and, and even then you could, I mean, Jesus says Christ died for the ungodly, so in a certain sense they do. But the point is, is there, there is some goodness that God reserves only for his people. But there is a general goodness of God where he, he just gives liberally to all things, whether they're evil or righteous, he just blesses. So that's what goodness is, and so is God good, and the Bible affirms that he is. And like all of his attributes, we want to say God is good essentially, so again, goodness is his nature, it's his character. Goodness is not something outside of God that he adds to himself. There's not a standard of goodness outside of God that he looks at and he's like, oh, I want to be like that. I need to conform my life to that. Good is just simply who God is. He can't not be good. We can be. We can be good. We can be not good. We can grow in goodness. God cannot do that because goodness is part of who he is. He's, it's definitional to who he is. And so because it's who he is, his goodness then has to be like his character and nature. So he is immutable, God cannot change, which means his goodness cannot change because his goodness is himself. So his goodness is immutable, it cannot change, cannot get less, it cannot get greater. Uh, it's, it's always the same. And this means that his goodness is infinite because he is infinite. So God has, is infinitely good. There's, there's nothing else that can be infinitely good like God. And so these three, all these things together tell us that God alone is good because no one else is infinite, no one else is immutable, no one else is good essentially. So in the, in, in, if you were to like do good with a capital G, God alone is good. And Jesus affirms this with the rich young ruler. And behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And then later he goes on to identify that as God. Which the amazing thing about this is, is in this text, Jesus uh, is implicitly getting the rich young ruler to, to admit that Jesus is good. And there's only one being that's good and it's God. So what does that make Jesus? makes Jesus God. So Matthew 19, and this shows up in some of the other gospel accounts too, is actually about the deity of Christ. Jesus is not trying to tell him, uh, people who deny the deity of Christ will try to say that Jesus' point is he's actually saying, I'm not good. Like Jesus is actually trying to say, no, 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 don't call me good. God's, God alone is good, not me. Um, but when you read this in context, it's pretty clear that's not what Jesus is doing. He's trying to get the rich young ruler to admit you're the only good one. You're the good God. And the rich young ruler does not admit that. And so that's why they ended up parting. And he, the rich young ruler did not become a disciple of Christ.
So God alone is good. Uh, and this is really important. God's good nature, so he is good by nature. It does not require him to be equally good to all, but instead to always act in goodness. So here's what I mean by that. So God is infinitely good. So what is the ramifications of that? How, how does an infinitely good God relate to the world? And a mistaken way of assuming that is because God's goodness is infinite, it has to come to us infinitely, which means that it would have to be equal in every area. So no one person could ever get less goodness from God than another. God would have to bless everyone the exact same way. And the Bible is just very clear that that's not the case. So because God is by nature good and infinitely good, the ramifications of that does not mean that God has to display his goodness equally to everyone at every time. All it means is that whenever God does anything, it has to be good. He can't ever do something that isn't good. So his infinite goodness, it, it doesn't affect the amount of goodness we receive. It affects the quality of all of God's works. So it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Everything God does is good, rather than God must treat everyone the same way. Does that distinction make sense? I have known parents who had multiple children say at Christmas they got each one of them the exact same thing, thinking that was being fair. Whereas to me, different ages, different genders, different personalities require a different gift. Yeah, that's great. No, it does, yeah. And we're going to say something pretty similar to that here in a minute. But yeah, no, that's exactly right. There's... It, 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 in other words, it might sound good at first to think of a God who just gives the same goodness to everyone at all times, but if you were to sit in a room and think that through for a long time, I think you would find a, a number of reasons, that analogy included, why that actually doesn't, that actually isn't such a, a good idea. Exactly, right. Precisely, which then ironically would make what he does not good. If God gives you something because you need it, and then he gives it to me even though I don't need it, that wasn't good, right? So God, it would not be possible for him to treat everyone the same way if what is good for one person isn't good for another. Like a good example of that would be <laughs> like um, if, 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 if one child was really, really sick, and so you gave them antibiotics, and it made them better, and you thought, well, I gotta be equal here, so I'm gonna give my other child antibiotics. But they're not only not sick, but they have an allergic reaction to the antibiotics. So it looks good, I look, I gave them both the same thing, but it wasn't good to one child, and it was good. So that's, that's a great point. If God distributes goodness equally to all, it would inevitably be not good to some. Um, and and the, another reason why we want to emphasize this is because God's goodness to us is still the freedom of his will. Here's what we mean by that. If we, we want to be careful in thinking of God. So if we say that God is good, and so everything he does, so he has to be good, right? That picture could make us be less grateful when God is good to us because we think, well, he had to do this. Right? He, has to be, he has to be good, so whatever good thing I've received... Uh, God had to do it. And so why am I like grateful to him? 
Right? Why am I grateful to a God who just, like a robot, is just has to do this thing? And that's why we wanted to make this point. So if you just think of a good thing in your life, God did not have to give you that. Whatever God does in your life has to be good, but he has a lot of different ways he can be good. He's not forced to be good in only one way. So even though God has to be good to you because of his nature, the way in which he's good to you is still his wisdom and his freedom. So that's why we can still, you know, like I, I think of my son. My son is the biggest blessing in my life. And God did not have, God's goodness did not force him to give me my son. It just forced God, whenever God interacts with me, it's going to have to be good. But he can be good to me in different ways. So I can still thank God for my son because I know that God did not have to give me Matthew. He had to be good to me, but not through Matthew. He could have chosen a different way. So the goodness you experience from God is still his will. It's still the freedom of his will to say, I love you. I'm going to do this for you. I know it will bless you. And so we can still be thankful for the ways in which God is good to us even though he can only be good. Does that make sense? So that, that's why we wanted to clarify this up here. God is still, just like your analogy, he's, he's, st he's not just like this, this ATM that just spews out automatic goodness to everybody. He, he knows us individually and he says, I'm gonna be good to them this way. I'm gonna show them this goodness. I'm gonna be good to them. It's, it's still totally his freedom and his wisdom. Uh, but whatever he does, it will ultimately end up being good. Uh, the, the, the main thing that comes up in these discussions, when we talk about the goodness of God, whether especially with non-Christians, but even with Christians, is the issue of theodicy. And theodicy just is, is just a term, it's just a theological title for trying to reconcile the goodness of God with all of the evil we see in the world. That's what, that's what theodicy is. If you were to in, engage in studying theodicy, you would be studying what are the different, how do we make sense of, if God is so good, if he really is, if I'm supposed to worship God as this good God who is infinitely good and he knows what's best for everybody, then why do so many people's lives stink? Doesn't look like God is good to them. Why, are, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? Now, obviously, something like theodicy is something that probably deserves its own class, so we're just going to give a very, very, very brief run-through of, of theodicy. And one of the challenges of theodicy is, is when you start talking about evil and suffering, in a class like this, you tend to approach the topic just purely intellectually. And that can rub people the wrong way because we're dealing with very emotional things here. And so I just want to say from the get-go, the, the purpose of our class today is just to give an intellectual harmonization between the goodness of God and suffering. So it's not to downplay evil, right? Like I'm not trying to say evil's not a big deal. It's right. It's not trying to downplay it. It just, there's a, there's a time to approach evil through an emotional lens and there's a time to approach it through an intellectual lens. And so today we're doing the intellectual lens, but that's not to say that we, we, you know, it's not a very serious and difficult issue. We recognize that. But, um, Typically, uh, so like I said, theodicy is reconciled God with evil, and we can understand evil in two ways. There's natural evil, which is suffering, because the only reason people suffer is ultimately because something has happened to them. So like cancer, we would still call it evil, even though like no agent made a choice. 
Right? That's, so that's why we call it a natural evil. Even though like no individual did something to you when you get cancer, uh, it still falls under the broad category of evil. So natural evil is basically just what we mean by suffering. Someone falls out of a tree and snaps their leg, that's evil. That's natural evil. Um, because the reason we can do that is because the, the suffering we experience, emotional suffering, physical suffering, are ultimately effects of sin. These, these are curses from sin. So they still fall properly under the category of evil. Uh, I just say that because it, it, can, it can make people confused, like, you know, when they get chicken pox and we call that evil. It's like, I'm not evil and no one did anything to me. It just, it's just nature, right? Um, but no, it's, it's, it's a result of the fall. It's a curse from the fall. It's part of the, the evil. And so anytime someone suffers, we call that natural evil. And then typically when we use the term evil, what we think of is moral evil. And that's when an actual agent sins. So if somebody, you know, breaks into my house and steals all my stuff, that's evil, that's sin. Um, if I get a cold that's evil, that's suffering. Natural evil versus moral evil. So I mean both of those in this definition. We want to reconcile all forms of evil with the goodness of God. And uh, the, the classic way that, like you ask, well, off the top of my head, how, those things, how are they in conflict? And here's why people think they're in conflict. This comes from a very ancient document. We're talking before Jesus um, uh, that Plato wrote. And, and Plato is interesting Plato and Aristotle and Socrates would write their philosophies oftentimes through fictional stories. So rather than just write like a really dry philosophy textbook, they would create characters and they would create situations where these characters are dialoguing about their situation. And in that, they would, these characters would philosophize and that's how they would teach philosophy. So Plato wrote this story where he created this character named, I don't know how to pronounce this, people I've heard a lot of different pronouncements pronunciations. I've, I've heard Eudifro, um, so that's how I say it, but I don't know if that's true. But there's this character named Eudifro, and he's dialoguing with a hypothetical Socrates, and he basically is bringing up why he doesn't believe that there is a God, and, his, and he thinks evil disproves God. And this is not a direct quote. This is just kind of how I would summarize what has now been called Eudifro's dilemma. And he says this, if God were powerful, he would stop evil. If God were good, he would want to stop evil. So, but there is evil. He hasn't stopped evil. So that means that evil itself, exi the existence of evil proves that God is either not good or not powerful. But he's, he's arguing we can't believe that God is both powerful and good. If he was powerful, he would stop evil. And if you're saying he's powerful, he can stop evil, but he's just choosing not to, then he's now not good. Because a good God would do this, a good God would do that. Uh, so this is, this is what we mean with theodicy. How, how is a good God allowing so much evil? And if you say, well, he just can't do anything about it. Okay, well, maybe that God is good, but he's, he's certainly not very powerful now. So you have a problem on the other. That's why it's a dilemma. You go one direction, you've got a problem. You go another direction, you've got a problem. To put it in uh, kind of a more, to help us, we're going to put it in a somewhat of a, like a logical syllogism. So premise one, God is all good. Premise two, God is all powerful. Premise three, evil exists. And Eudifro is saying these three things cannot all three be true. If God was all powerful, he would get rid of evil. If God was all good, he would want to get rid of evil. So three cannot coexist with one and two. And yet Christians are saying that these three things coexist. 
So Christianity is not true. Uh, but there's actually, like I said, if we, if we don't approach this emotionally and we just approach it intellectually, there's actually a very simple solution to this. And that is that we just add a fourth premise. God is all good. God is all powerful. Evil exists. God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil which exists. We don't have to know what this is. What is God's morally sufficient reason for all these different evils? We don't have to know what it is. But the fact that God could have a morally sufficient reason tells us that we cannot just assume that these three things don't fit together. Right? I mean, imagine, like if I were to simplify it, imagine if somebody said, uh, you know, uh, Bonnie is good, Bonnie is powerful, yet she spanks her grandkids. And that causes suffering. These three things can't exist. Well, no, she might have a good reason to spank her grandkids. So, I'm, just, I'm not saying you do or don't. I'm just using that example. So you, you get the point. You can't just say, well, spanking exists. Therefore, parents can only be good or powerful. They can't be one or the other. No, that doesn't follow. And we're saying the same thing. You can't just say evil exists. Therefore, God would want to stop it or could stop it. Uh, yeah, in other words, what we're denying is that God does want to stop all evil. We are denying that. God does not want to prevent all evil. And he has a good reason for that. So this, this is not actually contradictory is what we're saying. This is not actually contradictory. People assume it is, but it's not. When you say God is all good, therefore he wants to eradicate all evil, we would say as Christians, prove that. Like how, why does goodness equal I don't want any evil ever? Like that's, a, that's an assumption. Not, that's not something we agree with. And we would say if God has a morally sufficient reason for evil, then in a sense, he, his goodness does not compel him to always want to stop evil. Right? And, and like I said, that goes back to the spanking example. So I, 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 I mean, I'm not a perfect dad, but generally speaking, I'm a good dad, and my goodness will actually compel me to spank Matthew. Because I know that there's a morally sufficient reason for that, because it will actually make him a better person. And it will help... Him being obedient will save his life in certain circumstances. If he runs out in the street and I say, Matthew, come back here, and he disobeys me, he's going to get hit by a truck. So I have a morally sufficient reason to spank him when he's young, to make him more holy, and to protect him in the future. But Matthew cannot look on his circumstances and say, my dad is spanking me, he must not be good. He, you know, he, he doesn't have the intellectual ability to, to know oh, this spanking is going to be good for me in the future. This spanking is going to be good for society in the future. Matthew doesn't know that. All Matthew knows is, my dad claims to be good, but this hurts, so he must not be good. And we know, because we're old enough, we know that, no, that, that doesn't follow. So this is basically infantile thinking. God is supposed to be good, but all this stuff hurts. Right? Matthew, my dad's supposed to be good, but spanking hurts. Well, that doesn't prove that spanking is wrong. That doesn't prove that my goodness is violated by spanking, right? Does that, so does that make sense? In other words, uh, Greg Bonson, he's, he came up with this, and he's an apologist, and here's, here's his point. The problem which men have with God when they come face-to-face -face with evil in the world is not a logical or philosophical one, but more a psychological one. And here's Bonson's point. If you put this before any logician, go to any university in the world, and give this to a logician, and they will tell you this is perfectly logically sound. This, there's, no, there's no illogic in this. 
And Bonson was a PhD philosopher. He would tell you that the, the, the logic is sound, the philosophy is sound, yet when we look at this, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, we still don't like it. We just want this to go away. And so Bonson's point is, really what people actually have is an emotional problem with evil. They do not have an intellectual problem because there's no logical contradiction. This is perfectly logical. So there's no logical contradiction. There's no philosophical. At the end of the day, we just really don't like it. We're just uncomfortable with it. We don't like it. And, and Bonson's point is, that's a bad reason to think that God is not good just because you don't like what he's doing. That's not the standard of God's goodness, always doing what we like, right? So evil really does not disprove the goodness of God. It, it maybe confounds us. Maybe we, we wish we knew more about his morally sufficient reasons for allowing evil, and we wish God would tell us more. That's fine to say. But there's no contradiction between God's goodness and evil. There's an emotional struggle, but there's not a logical contradiction. Does that make sense? Um, so just a few more thoughts on that. So God uses evil for better goods. It's essentially what we're saying. Romans 8.28, for he causes all things for the good of those who love him for those who have been called according to his purpose. So all the bad things that happen in your, in your life are actually God's goodness. He's doing something good for you. Uh, we could also say that evil's existence brings glory to God. Um, and Paul brings this up in Romans chapter 9. Part of why God does not stop all evil is because then on the judgment, on the last day, he can judge it. He can pour out his wrath on it. And now God is getting proper glory to his attributes of justice and wrath. Because think about this, just suppose Adam had done what Adam was supposed to do and the whole world went on for millions of years and we were perfectly righteous and there was no sin. On judgment day, would we see God's wrath? No, no one deserves it. Would we see God's justice? Not really. But not just that, would we see God's mercy? No, no, a righteous person doesn't need mercy. So in a world without evil, God never reveals his justice. He never reveals his wrath. He never reveals his mercy. He never reveals his kindness. There's so much about God that goes unglorified, unknown in a world without evil. And so part of evil's purpose is to ultimately bring glory to God. And here's why this is relevant, because if God is good to all, God's good to everything, that includes angels, that includes men, that includes creation, but what else would that include? God is good to every, every conceivable thing. Creation, angels, men. That includes God himself. God is good to himself. An infinitely God who's perfectly good cannot be good to us at the expense of himself. So in order for God to be perfectly good, he needs to honor and love and treat himself properly, which sounds weird, but it's really not. Even we in the Bible are called to love ourselves. We are told to love your neighbor as you love yourself. The standard by which you treat other people, the love you give to other people is based on your own self-love, right? And that, that plays into the golden rule. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. That's essentially just saying the same thing. You love yourself. You take care of yourself. So do that to other people. Do you like being hungry? No. So feed the homeless person. Do you like being cold? No. Give that person a blanket, right? Our love of self becomes the the motivation or the standard to love others. And another example is in Ephesians 5, Paul tells husbands to love their wives as they love and cherish their own bodies. 
I don't let bad things happen to my body. I don't let people cut me or stab me or poke me. So I'm not going to let someone cut or stab my wife, right? We, we do the same thing. So God wants to be good to himself just as much as he wants to be good to others. And so if God's going to treat himself well, then he's going to get the glory he is worthy of, glory he deserves of. So God allowing evil to bring himself glory is an act of goodness to himself. Um, oh, and this, this was related to what Becky was saying earlier, though it's not the same thing, but it's, uh, it's, it's in that same ballpark. If God was just equally good to everybody, and so therefore there was no evil and there was no suffering because everyone was just getting the same great life, this would actually hide God's goodness in a, in a mul multiplicity of ways. First and foremost, if everyone just got the same thing, that would go back to what we were saying, it would make it, we would not be able to see God's free choice in goodness. Because if, if God is just merely giving every single creature the exact same thing all the time, then we're not really seeing God make a choice to bless me how he wants to bless me. It's just back, it's just back to that automatic ATM thing. It's just blessing, blessing, blessing. He's just, he's just this big automatic robot. And so in that, we wouldn't really see the goodness of God. It's, he's just this automatic thing that's just pouring out equal blessings everywhere. So we wouldn't really see God in that. We wouldn't see his individual choice. And part of how we understand goodness is through comparing. The reason I know that a million dollars is good is because I don't have it. I, I know how much money I have and what my money can do. And so I know if I had more of it, I could do more things. But if everyone just per perpetually and always got the same thing, we wouldn't have this comparative standards, and so we really wouldn't even be able to identify what is goodness. Like, God's been good to me. How? By just giving me all the same stuff he's given everyone else for all eternity. Like, we wouldn't even see God's goodness. And so part of why evil exists is because God does not desire to be equally good to all people at all times, because that would hide his personal choice. It would hide goodness itself. That's a great point. Charnock, Charnock mentions that in his book. Charnock says the same thing. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. We, this, this, would, this would take away our prayer. It would take away our desire to thank him. It would take away our content. I mean, it, this would just destroy so many things that God is deserving of and worthy of. That's, that's a great point. That's exactly right. Yep. And so if God is going to be less good to some than others then that's naturally going to bring about some level of what we would call evil. One person is going to get something less than other pe people, and that is going to make them not feel good. So if, um, the only way to get rid of evil is for God just to be perpetually and infinitely good in the same way to all people. And even though that would destroy evil, that would destroy a whole lot of other things we don't want destroyed in the process. Right. So again, all, all we're really talking about is yet again why we, we reject the assumption that an all-good God necessarily desires evil to never exist. We're just saying that that's not technically true. Uh, another thing people would say is, uh, has come up related to evil and suffering is judgment. I mean, God himself pours out judgment on people. A lot of the suffering that people experience is not just the universe being the universe and God standing by. Um, the Bible is very clear that oftentimes 
when bad things happen, it's God doing it as an act of ju- judgment. And so some people have posed, how can we call judgment good? Certainly, um, God is not being good when he's judging things, when he's casting, pouring out wrath on something. That's not an act of goodness. Um, but we would say it is. First and foremost, punishing evil is good to others. If someone does something of tremendous harm and evil to you, and it goes to court, and they are found guilty and sent to prison, you would put your hands to the sky and thank God. God punishing evil is a goodness to those who have been affected by evil. I was just watching, I'm not sure if you guys care, but what has taken the world by storm has been this silly Amber Heard Johnny Depp trial. Have you heard anything about it? And the verdict just came out today. Amber Heard was found guilty of lying about Johnny Depp. So she accused Johnny Depp, her ex-husband, of abusing her physically and sexually. And she went into a, a Washington Post and published an article saying, he abused me. He sued her for defamation and he won. And, and you could just see after the verdict came through, the joy and the relief that he and his team of lawyers had. If they were Christians, they would call that the goodness of God. Justice is good. It doesn't feel good to the person getting what they deserve, but to everybody else, punishing evil is a good. It is good. We, we want to see evil punished. And again, um, God must also be good to himself. So when people offend him, it is an act of goodness to himself to punish that. And another thing is laws are an extension of goodness, right? Laws are good. Laws provide order. They provide protection. Laws are good, but here's the problem with laws. They, by definition, require a penalty. If there's no penalty for breaking a law, then it's really not a law. It's, at that point, it's a suggestion. And a law becomes a law when there's a requirement. You have to do this. And a requirement is not a requirement unless there's a consequence. So if God's going to give us something good, like laws, then he is by definition going to have to give us the penalty of breaking law. So judgment is goodness in the, in the fact that judgment is merely the other side of laws which are good. So yes, even, even when God pours out judgment upon a person or upon a city or upon people, that is still an act of divine goodness. Judgment is good. Just, just judgment is good. Um, and so we're almost finished here. So here's just some of the ways that we would say God's goodness is shown. Like where do we see God's goodness? And the obvious one is in scripture. All throughout the Bible, we're told God is good, God is good, God is good. Uh, We see it in creation. As a matter of fact, I was surprised at how many Bible verses there are that describe creation as the manifestation of God's goodness. We see God's goodness in the things that have been made. And let's not forget the famous verse. What did God call creation after he made it? It is good. It is very good. So God's creation itself is an act of generosity. God gave creation to itself. He gave us creation. Creation is an act of God's goodness. And, and this comes in a variety of ways. It's, it's beauty, it's pleasure, it's magnificence. But even in more specific ways, like the way God created the, the, uh, creation to provide for us, to take care of us. I mean, there's just so much in God's creation um, that reveals to us that he is good, that he, he gives, he gives, he gives. 
I, even, I don't have this on the slide, this is a bit of a side note, but even in tithing, we will talk, when, when I will usually give a brief exhortation for tithing, that's always kind of like a, in our day and age, it's kind of a tough thing because you don't want to look like the prosperity gospel. You don't want to look like those money-grubbing churches trying to manipulate people to tithe. But at the same time, you, you do want people to understand that this is not, this is not just this flipping casual thing we either do or don't do, that there, there are good biblical reasons why we should be doing this. So you, you always want to strike that balance where it's like, you, you really should be doing this. You should be tithing without looking like you're just trying to take people's money. Um, and, and so oftentimes one of the things we say is tithing is one of the ways that we practice being like God. Because God, because of his infinite power, has infinite amount of goods available to him because he can create goods. He can just make whatever he wants. So God has this infinite amount of goods, and yet he's always giving to us. He's, he's distributing these goods to us. He gives us creation. He gives us money. He gives us family. God is just constantly in the state of taking what is his and giving it to others. And so tithing, that's why sometimes we'll, I'll say things like, what tithing is, is just taking a small portion of what you have given us and giving it back to you. Tithing is, our, is part of our way of recognizing God is the one who has given me everything. Everything I have comes from God. And so I'm going to practice being like God and I'm going to give back just a little bit to the one who gives everything, right? So we'll say that in tithing. Tithing, in other words, is a reminder of God's goodness. Every time we tithe, one of the blessings of tithing is what should be on our minds is God gives me everything. This is just a small, tiny little fraction of all of God's goodness that he gives to me. Um, we see God's goodness and providence, the way he, we, we talked about this, I can't remember if it was last week or the week before we talked, just the way he protects us, like in your car accident. We see the, the amazing way God protects us, the way he guides our life into the seasons we need to be in, how he knows what's best for us even when we don't know what's best for us. Um, we even see God's goodness, not just in his providential governing over us, but over creation itself, right? Jesus uses as the example, um, Jesus says, look at the birds of the air, does God provides for them and takes care of them. How much more is he going to provide for you? Now, obviously, Jesus' point in that is to show how God provides for us. But that still causes us to reflect upon, it's amazing. Jesus actually says, like, the birds don't worry about whether they're going to eat tomorrow. They don't worry about, they just know instinctively. I mean, they don't think of it like this, but they just know God's going to provide for me. But isn't that, isn't that honestly just amazing that God, he's not just so in love with us that he just lets all the animals go to hell? Just screw the animals. I'm just going to take care of people. No, he is, he is so abundantly good. Yes, he takes care of us, but he, he provides for nature as well. He takes care of the caterpillars. He takes care of the mice. He takes, you know, he's just providentially in control and providing for all creatures, right? Not just us. God's goodness is shown in his law. Again, his law all throughout scripture is considered a blessing. Um, it's, it's relevant even to our sermon series. Like we've been talking a lot about how Jew and Gentile are equal in Christ now. Um, there's no such thing as Jew or Gentile anymore. And one of the questions that Paul got on more than one occasion as he was teaching this gospel that Jew-Gentile doesn't matter. All that matters is that you're in Christ. So the Jews would ask Paul, like almost, you can almost imagine they were exasperated. It's like, so was there any advantage to being a Jew at all? Like if, if you're just sitting here saying that 
at the end of the day, we're all saved the same way. We're all in the same family. God loves us all the same. We all inherit the same blessings. What was the point of all this Jew-Gentile stuff in the Old Testament? Is there any benefit to being a Jew at all? And Paul answers in the book of Romans. He says, yes, much in every way. And he gives examples of some of the blessings of being Jewish that the Gentiles didn't have or never had. And one of those blessings he gives in Romans 9 is that the Jews received the oracles of God. An oracle is just a fancy word for laws. So, in other words, what Paul is doing is Paul is saying, if you look at the people in the Old Testament times and you take, who would you rather be? Would you rather be part of the nation that never heard a single word from God and had no laws from God on how to govern themselves? Or would you rather be part of the nation where God told them exactly how to operate their lives? It's like, yeah, I want to be in that latter group. Like, when we think of it in those terms, I, am, I, I do not want to exist in a world where God is silent. He just lets me try to figure out how to live life. He reveals. So all throughout Scripture, God's law is never seen the way modern Americans tend to look at it, which is this really bad, oppressive thing. The law is always viewed as this amazing thing. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, is just David talking about how much he loves God's law. I meditate on your law day and night. Teach me your commandments. I want your commandments to be my food. Your, your word is a light to my path, right? Uh, it is just such an amazing thing that God has revealed righteousness and moral living and beneficial living to us. And when we break God's law, life doesn't usually go well. Maybe at the beginning, but eventually it catches up with us. So we see the goodness of God's law. We could spend a lot of time talking about this. Charnock spends almost 100 pages. I'm just going to briefly go through it. But obviously, God's goodness is shown in redemption, right? I mean, sending his only son, that's amazing. If you think about it, even in human terms, a person's goodness when they give you something, that's always good. But we, we understand that the more precious what they give you is makes them more good. If I give you a pencil, that's really nice. Thank you. That was a good thing to do. But if I give you a car, that's way, that's way more good than a pencil. And in God giving us his son, he, he gave us literally the most precious thing in creation. So how good is God to give us his son, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If, if there's any verse that describes the goodness of God, it's John three sixteen. he gave us his son. And he gave us his son in an incarnational way. Like he, he gave us the son in, in such an amazing way. Like he didn't just, he wasn't just this floaty spirit that we could hear, right? He, he became a human being. It's really incredible. Uh, the fact that we're saved by grace and not of works, that's really good. I'm really thankful for that. Forgiveness, that's, that's a good thing. Heaven, goodness gracious, that's a good thing. The sacraments, Jesus did not have to give us baptism in the Lord's Supper, but he did. And we see the way it affects our lives and, and strengthens our faith and God speaks to us through them. Uh, God's gonna glorify our bodies one day. That's amazing, right? We could go on and on and on and just showing all the different ways that redemption is, is an act of God's goodness and his liberality. Um, so those were the five I came up with. I'm sure there's probably way more. Um, and I didn't just come up with these other people who are saying these too. God's goodness shown. So let's just finish with some applications and then we'll be done. Uh, the most obvious one is God is good. So what does that mean for you? That we should be good, right? So like, like we talked about with holiness, goodness is a communicable attribute, communicative, communicable, which means it can be communicated. We can be good like God. Now, obviously we can't be goodness itself the way God is goodness itself, but we can reflect God's goodness in our own lives, right? So this is a call for us to be good. That means that we should 
even bless our enemies. We're told in the Sermon on the Mount, do not curse your enemies, but bless them. And why do we do that? Because God does that. God has enemies all over the earth. And what does he do? He gives them sunshine. Yes. Oh, yes, it is. That's one of the hardest things to do as a Christian. Absolutely. Um, but obviously not just blessing our enemies. I mean, this is, this is why we want to be good stewards of the earth. That's why we want to take care of this earth that God has given us. And we want to give to people in need. We want to give to our church members. And not just give money, right? Because God doesn't just give us material things. We, anything that's good, we want to give. Whatever you have that's good, you want to give. Money is good, so you should give your money away. Uh, love is good, so you should give your love away. Kindness is good, so give your kindness away. Right? So this is not just material things. Anything that is good, anything that you would desire, we want to be liberal with. We want to, we want to freely bestow all good things to other people. And when we do that, we are acting like God. Um, another great application is to be thankful and content. I probably should have broke those down. But when we remember that all good things come from God, and we remember that God, all the good things I have, God could have given me less good things, and he was, would not be wrong. And that should just really help us to just be thankful. Just constant, in a constant state of thankfulness. Thankful for all that you have given me. As a matter of fact, in Romans 1, when Paul is describing atheism, disbelief, he describes unbelievers as those who God's righteous wrath abides upon them. For although they knew God, they did not honor God nor give thanks to him. The heart of unbelief is thanklessness. We've got all these people in the world who've got all this good stuff and no one to thank for it. God brings sunshine onto their crops. He brings rain onto their crops and they've got no one to thank for it. And so that's why you'll even have people literally say things like thank the universe or count your lucky stars because these are people who who just instinctively know I'm thankful, but I have no one to be thankful to. And that's offensive to God. So um, God's goodness, his goodness to us all the time should make us thankful. And then when you become thankful, that will naturally lead to contentment. It's hard to be discontent and thankful at the same time. I'd argue you really can't be. So another way that we honor God's goodness is by being content. Paul says in the book of Philippians, I have learned to become all things. I, 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 can, I can be brought high, I can be brought low, but I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, right? That, that verse is not about scoring touchdowns. That verse is about, I can be rich and healthy, I can be poor and sick, and no matter my circumstances, I can be content. I can be thankful. Contentment is easily one of the most important ways that we honor and apply the goodness of God. I like to phrase it like this, God's goodness is, I think, the easiest way for us to enjoy God. A lot of God's other attributes, we reflect upon them, and they're important, they matter. I'm not saying they don't matter, but we just don't experience them. Like, God knows all things. That's amazing. But, like, how, does, how do I, I, and I'm not saying there's no applications. That does affect my life. But, right, I don't experience his omniscience. I don't really have, like, a, connecting point to that. Um, even his holiness, I would say to some degree, we don't really experience it. I think we will. I think the glory of heaven is when we will finally experience God's holiness. Moses got a small taste of the holiness of God on Sinai. Uh, Isaiah had a small taste of the glory of the holiness of God when he ascended up into his vision. So even now, God's holiness is an abstract concept. I don't really experience it. His omniscience is an abstract concept. I don't really experience it. But the goodness of God is what we experience every day. Like his goodness is the thing that's closest to us in a sense. And so this is one of the easiest ways for us 
to experience God and to know God and to feel God. And so, you know, that's why we should just be thankful. I mean, God's goodness is how we're always connected to him and experiencing him. You know, his goodness is not just a concept, right? It's, it's here. It's, it's this electricity in, in our cars and this beautiful weather. I mean, his goodness is just right here at our fingertips all the time. I'm sorry, Becky, were you going to say something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so true. Yep. What, just the other day I was driving and I was listening to my, my phone and it was on shuffle. And it, and it wasn't even on a, like a specific playlist. It was just pulling random songs from the internet and playing them. And suddenly I had this, I had some deja vu and it made me think about a certain time of my life. And then that time of my life there was a song I was always listening to. And so I suddenly started thinking about that song. I just remember thinking, how cool would it be that song just randomly played, that was like the next song on my shuffle. And lo and behold, it was the next song on my shuffle. And the first thing I was tempted to think was, is the government reading my mind at this point? So unfortunately, my first thought was, the government is literally reading my thoughts. Because I didn't vocally express it so my phone could hear it and play it. I just thought it. But I thought, no, I don't think the government's that smart. I don't think they know how to read my mind. So then I went to, I think that was just God. And it, it was, it's true. It was amazing how I was just like, he's so real. He's so alive. He's exactly. And something as small as beans or something as small as a song, he still can just bless us so much. Uh, another application is to be humble. Again, like we said, so because blessings are not necessarily a reflection of how good you are or how much God loves you, that means that what you can't do is you can't look down on people who have less than you doesn't mean they're, they're, you're better than them. You know, so this, it, it, it humbles us. It checks our pride. Like, yeah, I have a lot more than a lot of people in the world, and that's just purely God's goodness and grace. It's not because I'm better than them. So it, it really keeps us humble to just remember, he's just good. Why, why did I get a new house? Because God is good. That's why. That's why I have a house. Uh, another one is to enjoy nature, right? Creation is one of the, the primary ways God is good, so we should enjoy it. Right? We should go out into nature. We should, you know, Layla and I love to just sit on our porch and listen to birds, and just listen to trees, right? We, God is just so glorified when we enjoy this amazing gift he's given us. It, it's really a sad thing to just live our lives in, inside of a building all the time, which is still a good thing. Buildings are good things. We are thankful to God, but still, to never meditate on creation or go out and enjoy creation, it's, it, I think that's just such a, a sad thing. My, my biggest regret from Alamosa was I've never been much of an outdoorsy guy, and Al- Alamosa, is, that's like all there is to do. And I just never took advantage of it. I just, back then, I just wasn't interested in hiking or fishing or snowboarding, and now that's, that's one of my biggest regrets is I was, I was living in the mountains and I never really took advantage of it. If I, if I could go back in time, that's one thing I would change is I would, I'd be outside all the time in Alamosa. So, but, but you can enjoy nature. It doesn't mean you have to even go outside. I mean, you can just meditate on it, reflect on it. You can study it. You know, one of, one of my favorite things to do is to watch like nature documentaries. Just the amazing things you can learn about the ocean and outer space. And so it doesn't, doesn't just mean getting outside. There are lots of ways to enjoy nature, but God's creation is wonderful and we should, 
enjoy it. And then this one we've already covered. Bonnie talked about it, but an application is, is prayer. Um, we should pray. God is good to us, and so we can trust that he hears us and responds to us and wants to be good to us. Um, Jesus even uses this analogy where he says, a good, would a good father give a snake to his son if he asked for bread? Right? So if, if God is good, then that should encourage us to approach him. Uh, and that, that was kind of the application that Charnock made. I said pray, but Charnock spoke a little bit more broadly about just approach God. And for us, that primarily happens through prayer. But the idea is if God wasn't good, then I would be too scared to talk to him. Like I, if, you know, if, if, if I met some stranger and someone said, that guy's not good, he's not a good man, I wouldn't like want to go up and introduce myself and meet him. I was like, oh, keep me away. So if God was not good, don't approach him, stay away. But when you believe that God is good, infinitely good, that gives us more confidence to want to come to him. I want to approach God. I want to be near God. And I understand he's holy and I understand I'm not, but he's also good. And so I, that gives us a lot of a confidence to approach him. And so if you're ever feeling timid about praying or approaching God or you just have to remember, no, he is good. He is always good.